Listener discretion is advised. On July 24, 2015, two 14-year-old boys, Austin Stefanos and Perry Cohen, go missing from Jupiter, Florida after taking their boat out into the Jupiter Inlet. Being avid fishermen and experienced boaters, they've done it dozens of times before, and they promise their parents that they'll remain inside the Jupiter Inlet, a large area of water protected from the Atlantic Ocean by the Florida coastline and Jupiter Island. Past curfew and unable to reach them by phone, their parents report the boys missing and one of the largest modern-day Coast Guard searches ensues to find the missing boys. What was the fate of their fishing trip? Find out on today's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about a marine accident that really touched my heart when it happened. I followed along with this story daily for the longest time, hoping that these boys would be found and returned to safety. I was so attached to the story because I was one of them. Growing up on the Florida coastline, my friends and I would constantly be out fishing or taking our parents' boat out and just doing dumb things. It easily could have been me or one of my friends. Perry and Austin were great friends who grew up together and worked side by side in a tackle shop. They immersed themselves in the salt life and virtually grew up on the water. They were out boating, fishing, diving, or swimming nearly every single day. Both of the boys' families described their sons as loving, caring individuals who were in love with the ocean. It was clear to them that they would eventually grow up to have careers on the water one way or another. In today's episode, we're going to cover the facts about what happened leading up to the boys' disappearance, what the Coast Guard search uncovered, some theories about the incident, and finally, what you can do to influence the outcome of a search and rescue should you ever go missing yourself. So first, let's cover the facts about the timeline. On Thursday, July 23rd, Austin Stefanos and Perry Cohen decide to take Austin's boat out the next day. Austin secured $100 in gas money and Perry asked his stepfather to borrow his GPS. On Friday, July 24th, after spending the night at Austin's house, the two take off in Austin's boat. It's a white, 18-foot Seacraft, a center console open fisherman with a single 115 Yamaha engine and no radio or GPS. Austin received this boat as a gift approximately one month prior to this event from his grandfather. With them on board, they brought their fishing poles and a white Yeti cooler. Sometime between 10 and 11 a.m., the boys stopped at the Jib Yacht Club and Marina and purchased $109 worth of fuel. Shortly after this, they are seen on another security camera, breaking a promise to their parents as they headed out past the Jupiter Inlet and into the Atlantic Ocean. At 11.25 a.m., Austin texts his mother, Carly Black, to check in with her. It's their agreement that Austin will text her every one to two hours to ensure her of his safety. AT&T also later confirms that Austin's phone pinged off an offshore tower at this time. It's also later revealed in court documents that Perry's phone had broken and that the boys had agreed to share the use of Austin's phone, therefore no cell phone or communication records exist for Perry on this day. Sources vary, but at or around 1 p.m., the National Weather Service issued a special marine warning that warned of heavy rains and winds in excess of 40 miles per hour. Between 2 and 3 p.m., Carly Black attempts to reach her son Austin multiple times, but never getting a response. At or around 3 p.m., Carly notifies her ex-husband, Austin's dad, Blue Stefanos, that she had been unable to reach Austin for the last hour. She noticed a big storm rolling in and was starting to become worried. 
Blue was calm at first. He decided to take his own boat out in search of the boys, and in fact, a similar sudden storm had appeared just the day before, and Austin, being an experienced boater, had successfully avoided it, and Blue assumed that the same was true for today. Now, if you don't live in Florida, then you would be unaware of our weather. During the summer, nearly every single day without fail, a large dark cloud rolls through, dumping a ton of rain, and then disappearing in less than an hour, leaving us with sunny skies yet again. They call us the Sunshine State for a reason, and to Blue, the storm didn't mean much. He had confidence that his son knew how to check the weather and knew how to avoid getting caught up in it. Around 4 p.m., Carly finally notifies Perry's mother, Pamela Cohen, that the boys haven't been heard from, and at this point, it's now been over two hours since they had last been contacted. Perry's stepdad, Nick Korniloff, calls 911 to report the boys missing, and the official timeline shows 911 operators being contacted at 4.23 p.m. The Coast Guard is then notified, and a massive search and rescue ensues. Both families immediately begin to raise awareness through news and social media to get as many people involved as possible to find their missing children. However, almost two whole days go by without a trace. Then, on Sunday, July 26, Austin's boat is identified by the Coast Guard about 65 miles or 105 kilometers offshore near Daytona, over 180 miles or 290 kilometers north of the Jupiter Inlet. The engine cover and the Yeti cooler are missing. One life jacket is found near the boat, but it's unclear how many had been on board to begin with. The Coast Guard sent the coordinates of the boat out to a retrieval team, but the boat was later unable to be located and was once again lost to the ocean. On the same day, July 26, private pilot Bobby Smith believes he saw one of the two boys floating on a piece of debris east of St. Mary's, Georgia, which is about 300 miles or 483 kilometers north of the Jupiter Inlet. Bobby Smith said in an interview, quote, It was obvious it was a person laying on their back. When we circled, both arms came up. It was a shock, end quote. Bobby snapped a picture of the debris and radioed for help, but when he looked back down, he wasn't able to find the debris again. The photo he took was at 3,000 foot altitude, and honestly, it's just a blurry mess. It's really hard to say what exactly is in this photo, but if you would like to take a look for yourself, you can find the photo on our Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, along with a few other photos related to this episode. The link to our Instagram page can also be found in the description. So, sort of getting back on track, you might have noticed how I just mentioned that Austin's boat was found over 180 miles or 290 kilometers north of where they were last seen, and then one of the boys was potentially spotted over 300 miles or 483 kilometers north. You might be asking yourself, why is this? Why do we seem to be moving further and further north during this search? Well, if you're unaware, there's large currents that run through all of our oceans. Off of the Florida coastline, we have what's called the Gulf Jet Stream. This stream comes into the Gulf of Mexico where it makes a sharp U-turn, and then, following the coast of Florida, it turns north going past Georgia, South Carolina, and so on. Luckily, search teams like that of the Coast Guards know about this jet stream and can kind of predict where drifters are going to be heading. But keep in mind, the ocean is still vast and unforgiving, and huge areas of water need to be covered as fast as possible. Knowing how this jet stream works does not mean that it's any easier to find people that are out missing in the ocean. On Tuesday, July 28th, which is now four days since the boys had last been seen, and almost two whole days since any new evidence, a glimmer of hope rises as a white cooler is spotted off of the Georgia coastline. However, this glimmer of hope quickly dies back down when it's discovered to just be a large piece of styrofoam. The search continues. 
On the same day, July 28th, Petty Officer Mark Barney told USA Today, the primary search area had moved north of Jacksonville and stretches as far as Savannah, Georgia and Charleston, South Carolina, hundreds of miles from home. Mark Barney would not speculate on how long these boys could survive if they were in the water, but Coast Guard Captain Mark Fedor told CNN that, at some point we have to suspend our search efforts. It's based on science. Mark said water temperature, weather, and the will to live are just some of the factors used in determining when a sea search is concluded. Sadly, after no new evidence of the boys, on Friday, July 31st, seven days after the boys went missing, the Coast Guard calls off the search for the two missing Florida teens. The search had totaled over 50,000 square miles or about 130,000 square kilometers of ocean, larger than the size of North Carolina. Anticipating the end of the Coast Guard search and rescue efforts, the two families of the missing boys raised over $100,000 to fund private search parties. This money not only went to contractor-led searches, but also reimbursed plane and boater fuel costs to private civilians who dedicated their free time to search and rescue efforts. Unfortunately, nothing new came out of these private searches, and on Sunday, August 9, 2015, 16 days after the boys went missing, the families announced in a joint statement that with absent new information, continuing the search is not practical. The statement also read, quote, we love our boys and we want them home. Today, our hope becomes our prayer that one day Perry and Austin will be returned to us. We thank everyone for their dedicated efforts and support. We will never stop looking for our boys, Austin and Perry. We ask that you join in our prayer that one day Perry and Austin will be reunited with their families." End quote. In March of 2016, nearly eight months after the boys went missing, a Norwegian ship spotted Austin's capsized boat 170 miles or 274 kilometers off of the east coast of Bermuda. This time, the boat was successfully recovered. On board, Austin's phone was found, but it had spent the last eight months submerged underwater and recovering any new information off of it seemed bleak. As of this recording in March 2021, Perry and Austin have yet to be found. The recovery of new information throughout the search and rescue raised many questions and theories, even going as far as Pamela Cohen, Perry's mother, claiming that there could be, quote, possible maritime crime or homicide, end quote. So let's take a look into the few different theories about the boys' disappearance. The first theory is pretty straightforward, and you've probably already guessed this one. It's simply that the boys got caught up in a storm past the Jupiter Inlet where their boat capsized and they were sadly lost to the sea. I won't get too deep into the details on this one, but there are a few ways that this could have happened. Either the boys were thrown from the boat, unable to relocate, and sadly drowned during the storm, or they were knocked unconscious during the capsize, or they miraculously survived the storm only to later lose their life after being stranded in the water, exposed to the harsh conditions and aggressive sea life. So moving into the second theory, we have some solid evidence to back this one up. This theory states that Austin and Perry traveled or tried to travel to the Bahamas as part of a preconceived plan. It's revealed in a court document that on July 23rd, the day before they went missing, Perry wrote in a private Instagram message to one of his friends, quote, Me and Austin are crossing to the Bahamas tomorrow. Come with us. We wouldn't check in, end quote. One of Austin's last social media posts comes from his Snapchat account the day before their boating trip. 
The photo contained a picture of their fishing poles with the caption reading, quote, peace out jupe, end quote. Another friend of the boys later revealed to investigators that usually when they say peace out jupe, they mean that they're going to the Bahamas. A Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission report said that a weather-related incident was to blame for the boys' disappearance. However, the Instagram messages and the other sworn testimony, including that of Austin's grandfather, indicated that the teens planned to skirt custom officials to get to the Bahamas. The girlfriend of one of Austin's family members gave a sworn statement to investigators that she believed the boys intended to take the boat out quite a distance. She said that she had seen them with two extra gas cans before they left. In his sworn testimony, Austin's grandfather, Richard Kuntz, told investigators that he gave Austin $100 in gas money for the boys' upcoming fishing trip. Part of his statement includes, quote, And that's when they start talking about going to the Bahamas. He was just there. He knows you need a passport. He didn't have any money. And he knows two engines to go, minimum, or two boats, never by yourself with one engine and one battery, end quote. Richard backtracks a bit, adding, quote, the one battery he wouldn't think about, but the one engine he would, and 40 gallons of gas, no, end quote. But remember earlier that I also mentioned that Perry asked his stepfather to borrow his GPS? Here's what Perry's stepdad, Nick, had to say about that, quote, And I said, what are you going to do with it? You guys going fishing, or what are you going to do with it? Besides that, how are you going to hook it up? No mount, no wire, end quote. Austin's boat wasn't equipped with a GPS, it would have been a special project that would need to be completed in order to install one. Therefore, as Nick is saying, the GPS was essentially worthless to them. Nick continues the statement by saying, quote, Perry said, no, he has some wires, he really wants to try, and I go, Perry, it's not gonna work, but if you need to satisfy your curiosity, go ahead, end quote. As you can see here, we have a lot of evidence between the conversations and the released social media content to paint a better picture on what the boys were attempting to plan. This information also ties in with our third and final theory related to the boys' disappearance. Richard Kuntz, along with Pamela Cohen, firmly believe that Austin and Perry were abducted and or murdered. Investigators have also taken this suspicion seriously. In March of 2016, when Austin's boat was finally recovered, images of the vessel were taken by the Norwegian crew. These photographs show both the ignition switch and the battery, both in hard-to-access parts of the boat, in the off position. This indicates that the boat was disabled intentionally. After recovering Austin's phone, it also became clear that his phone was properly powered off versus dying or losing power when it went underwater. The investigative file also discloses that at least two friends of Austin's received a Snapchat message from him on or about July 23rd reading, quote, we're effed, end quote. Investigators stressed, however, that neither friend could definitely confirm that they received this message on the day that the boys disappeared. As you can see, there's a lot of speculation that can be done here. On one hand, it's simple to say that these two boys were young and inexperienced and in a boat too small for the open water, and that's what ultimately cost them their lives. On the other hand, these two boys grew up in this environment. Carly Black, who again is Austin's mom, states, quote, This isn't something that he's new at. I think they feel better on the boat than they do on land, end quote. Nick confirms this, saying that the boys were raised on the water, knew how to navigate safely, and were more passionate about the sea than anything else. Regardless of how experienced you are in the water, things can happen. Things befall even the most sure-footed of mariners. 
Unless Perry and Austin are one day found or their bodies are recovered, all we can do is speculate. Their disappearance has left the families with unexplainable holes in their hearts and unimaginable pain and guilt. In the aftermath of these investigations, Pamela Cohen filed a lawsuit against the Stefanos family accusing them of negligence and wrongful death of Perry Cohen. If you recall to earlier in the episode, Blue Stefanos went searching for the two boys in his own boat after being notified that they were unreachable. At that point in time, Perry's family had yet to be notified that the boys were unable to be contacted. Pamela states that Carly and Blue's inaction in this event helped lead to Perry's untimely death. It's also stated in the lawsuit that it was made explicitly clear to Carly and Blue that Perry was not allowed on the boat without a supervising adult on board at all times. The court case was settled just minutes before a ruling, but I would like to quote Blue Stefano's lawyer, Michael J. Pike, here. Michael stated that, quote, Blue had to defend against some nasty allegations that cut to the heart of his family ties. It was sad, but at the end of the day, justice in this regard prevailed. Both families suffered tragic losses. However, Blue suffered the loss of his son, and the lawsuit sought to blame him for doing what any father would do, go search, end quote. It's safe to say that we all respond to trauma in our own way. Both Austin and Perry's family not only had to deal with the trauma of losing a child, but they also had these wounds reopened for months and months on end whenever new evidence was discovered or when glimmers of hope rose only to be extinguished just as quickly. Today, two foundations stand in honor of the missing boys. Both of these foundations are dedicated to raising awareness and promoting educational programs designed to improve voter safety. Perry's family has named their foundation the Perry J. Cohen Foundation in honor of their son, Perry J. Cohen. Austin's family has named their foundation the Austin Blue Foundation in honor of their son, Austin Blue Stefanos. If you would like more information about these two foundations, or if you would like to donate to them, you can find the link to each website in this episode's description. Before we end today's episode, I want to highlight the most important safety aspect of this episode and what you can do to help influence the outcome of an open water search and rescue should you ever go missing yourself. Before heading out into the open water, even if you're just planning a short cruise, always check the weather and make sure that all required safety material is on board and in working condition. Referencing Perry and Austin's home state laws, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission requires that each personal vessel must have a wearable U.S. Coast Guard approved personal flotation device, or AKA a life jacket, for each person on board. Vessels over 16 feet in length must have one throwable personal flotation device. At least one fire extinguisher must be present on board, an efficient sound producing device, such as a referee's whistle, and at least three daytime and three nighttime visual distress signals at all times, such as a flare. It's important to always double check that all of these items are on board prior to launching your boat. The main one here is that if you have flares, make sure you check them. You want to make sure that they stay dry while they're in storage and they haven't been damaged. The U.S. Coast Guard and the Marine Police considered flares expired after four years from the date of manufacture. This means, at the very least, you should be replacing your flares every three boating seasons or sooner if they become damaged. I also highly recommend ensuring that your boating vessel is equipped with a device known as an emergency position indicating radio beacon. That's a lot of words, but for short, it stands for EPIRB. 
This device is used to alert search and rescue services in the event of an emergency. The device itself can be a little pricey, running between $200 and $1,500 depending on the model. But personally, I think it's a small price to pay if it's something that can one day save your life. The good news is that these devices work on government-funded search and rescue satellites, so no monthly or annual subscriptions are required. But just know that if you do purchase one of these devices, you are required to register it with your local authority. But let's say you don't have this equipment, or your flares are damaged or you can't locate them, and your boat is now capsized. What do you do? Well, I can't emphasize this enough. Stay with your boat. Even if your only option is to float in the water next to it, stay with your boat. When searching for missing people in the ocean, these teams are flying high above the water, and when you're in the sky, it's easy to spot a large white dot against this dark blue ocean, but it's very hard to spot a tiny person all by themselves. You might see land and feel compelled to swim to it, but my advice would be to stick to your boat. On a clear day, you can see as far as 3 miles or 4.8 kilometers away. It might not seem like it's that far, but it's a lot further than you think. Swimming takes a lot of energy, and you still have to factor in any currents. So again, always check the weather, make sure your boat is equipped with proper emergency equipment, and always stay with your boat if you ever get lost at sea. You'll have a much better chance of being located. Have any questions about today's episode or want us to cover a specific diving or marine accident? Leave a comment on our Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, or on our Discord for a chance to have your question answered in next week's episode. Again, I'm your host, Alex, and thank you so much for listening to Narcosis Into the Deep. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listened this far, here's your hint at next week's episode. We're covering the first case of mutiny to go to trial since World War II. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you all next week. Thank you.